As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. As usual, Matt Slater alongside us, football news reporter at The Athletic. Coming up today with news of clubs of all shapes and sizes across Europe being sold or nearly sold or attracting new owners. We'll look at how a football club is valued, how deals are negotiated between the buyer and the seller with our guest, Dr. Tom Markham. This is the Business of Sport from The Athletic. Before we bring Tom in, Matt, obviously takeovers, nearly takeovers, failed takeovers, administrations uh, keep you very busy. Do you think it's happening more often or is there just more interest in buying clubs? I mean, there's a whole load going on at the moment. Well, today would suggest, yeah, it's happening It's happening quite a lot. We're right in the middle of account season, which I know we've talked about is one of my favourite mm. seasons of the year. And they are trickling in. I think we're up to about 15 out of the 20 Premier League clubs have filed accounts now. Picture we're getting is COVID really hurt, uh, hurt different clubs in different ways. And it's really hard to do year-on-year comparisons because some of them have tr- chosen to extend their year ends. There's a story coming. All will be explained. Uh, another big one I worked on was the, the Barnsley multi-club model, which involves clubs in Belgium and Switzerland and Denmark and France. And just, you know, a, fa- a fascinating way of approaching, if you like, the conundrum that is football these days. And they're actually doing pretty well on and off the field. Yeah, takeovers. So Wig- Wigan's just gone through, which is one of the reasons we're talking to Dr. Tom Markham. Uh, there's a couple that are coming today, today being Wednesday. Um, which will be revealed in our little chat with Tom, kind of live. And yeah, there's a load more out there, loads of conversations with clubs. Premier League deals are obviously harder to get over the line because they are bigger bigger sums, more complicated debt structure. But I think there's quite a lot going on. Okay, well, let's bring Dr. Tom in. Dr. Tom Markham, a specialist in football finance and strategy and also head of strategic business development of Sports Interactive, makers of the legendary Football Manager series. Before we go into some of the stories that Matt mentioned there, maybe particularly Ipswich, but first of all, your background, where you've come from to be in this position. Sure, yeah. Well, my background, I actually worked as a foreign exchange trader in the city for three years. Uh, I'd qualified as an accountant before that, didn't really enjoy any of that, decided to go back to university, did an MBA in football industries in the University of Liverpool, 
had a couple of job propositions in the industry, but ended up doing a PhD that specialized in football finance, worked with lots of on different projects for UEFA, national associations, et cetera. And then I went in as head of football clients at PwC. I mean, you have been involved in recent uh, attempts from from groups. I don't know what you would consortia to, to buy football clubs. Sure, yeah. Well, the most recent one actually was the Wigan deal, where I advised uh, Mr. Al Jasmi, the new owner. And I've actually, um, I was asked to become a non-exec at the club as well. So uh, I worked on that deal and that was an interesting one from administration. Uh, previously, I worked with a German group from, from Hamburg who bought into Dunfermline, which happened in the last 12 months as well. But before that, uh, two Chinese buyers, Yunyi at uh, West Brom and Landersport at Southampton. Why does somebody want to invest in Dunfermline or why does somebody want to buy Wigan or, or, or I mean, or any of them, actually? You know, we've done a lot of discussions on this pod, you know, for the whole variety of people about why you might want to buy a football club. And, and maybe there is this feeling trend to put various clubs in different markets together under a global brand. What are the benefits to investing in Dunfermline, for example? I think that's a really good question, Mark. And actually, the German group were, were extremely diligent and professional that, that we worked with on that deal. And I think they looked at clubs in nine different countries over an 18-month period. So they did things properly. But ultimately, why they decided on Dunfermline was that they felt that they could get the they could develop players and sell them into the English market. So one of the guys who's involved in that consortium is a cult hero at St. Pauli. And he actually has he he scored it in the only time they've ever beaten Bayern Munich. His name's Thomas Megel, but he's had every job at the club from sort of starting on the analysis side to director of football to uh, head coach. So they really have a, a big advantage on a lot of teams in Scotland. But ultimately, you've, you've got the development of players route. But in Scotland as well, the fact that there's so many, so little teams in the top tier, and I know Dunfermline aren't there yet, but they felt that's why, why, why there was value in it. But ultimately, if you're almost not getting relegated in Scotland, you're going to be qualifying for European competition with the new UEFA conference coming in. Do they all have a common theme of we want to make money? And do you then have to say, do you have to say in all of these, well, don't buy a football club then? Because that's the other message that comes across from a lot of people. It's not the best industry to be making money, I'd say. If you know what you're doing, the the scope to to make money, and there's lots of examples of, of that. But most people would lose money in the industry and, and people do it for lots of different reasons. So we have seen a lot more business people, particularly from the US, coming into this market. But the reason why they're coming into the UK and, and Europe in general is because the US uh, sports market is so expensive uh, and, and they feel that it's undervalued and, the, and that there are more opportunities here. But ultimately, we're going to have to look at a model change change and more financial control for for clubs to be able to make money the way that that sports in america do so when you talk about a model change what do you mean by that i can't see it happen personally but you would need more financial control i i I think the whole idea salary caps is is pretty much illegal 
but just finding the the right balance to to do to to manage clubs' finances and for them not to be consistently spending outside of their means. Why, in your opinion, are, are salary caps basically illegal? It restricts a worker's ability to to get paid what they deserve to get paid, and it it wouldn't happen in in any other industry. So. And I know FIFA are going down this route with, with agents as well. And I know we're going off on a slight tangent here, but I, it, it is an important one because clubs, that's where most of their, their money goes. So consistently you're, you're seeing a well-run club might spend 40, 50% of, of their earnings on, on, uh, on wages. Whereas you've got examples in the championship where people are going for broke, where it could be up to, you know, 150, 200%. Tom, I just wanted to jump in there because you, it's so interesting that the, the work you've been doing in the background, I've been, I've been dying to get you on the pod for ages. I just want to, I mean, this work you've been doing in Scotland, it's really interesting because we, we've got a few multi-club owners. We've got a few people that kind of are sniffing around clubs in lots of different markets. And look, Scotland has interested them for, for the reasons you've outlined. But there's apparently a, a bit of a black mark against Scotland in that it doesn't like dual ownership. It doesn't. It, it, its regulations are quite hard if you're trying to put together a multi-club model. Is that something you've come across? Yeah, I think that is true. And th- there's certain markets that don't mind, uh, Matt, that y- you've got clubs that don't mind being part of a bigger picture and, and part of, a, let's just say, a holistic cycle for the development of players and, and everything else. But... You know, Scottish football is very well attended per per capita. People are, you know, it's quite tribal. People like their local clubs. So I I think it's, you know, aside from the regulatory stuff, it's a difficult market to go in and do that. But I think it is it is a very interesting market for for a variety of reasons and predominantly for the development of British players because the value of British players is, is going to go sky high. Uh, because of, of Brexit and the GBE regulations for signing overseas players. So you've got a situation where their model was probably slightly different initially. They would have been looking at a more of a Huddersfield or a Norwich-style model where they they take in some German players because a, a lot of the German sort of reserve and under-23 leagues have been disbanded. So that you've got this gulf where players from the biggest teams are just been released and they might go to Bundesliga 2, they might end up in the in the regional third tier, but there's lots of very good players who who are extremely professional who who physically would fit into to the British game. And and I think that was their initial model and they've had to tweak it. We've also got a very very unsubtle habit of crowbarring references into previous podcasts. And the other thing that often uh, comes to mind or certainly crops up in conversations around Scottish football, even the Irish leagues, is cross-border leagues. Are you hearing punters, investors starting to make, dare I say, punts on what may happen with a league becoming more attractive, more money coming into a league because it's merging? A hundred percent. And I, I, it was no secret over what, what happened uh, from a Belgium and Netherlands perspective. I think that that was always on the on the cards. And there was previously, actually, strangely enough, a failed version with, with the Women's League, where it just became dominated by the Dutch clubs. But I, I think if you look at the power base at UEFA, you have, you know, someone at the top of the pyramid who's from Slovenia, 
You've got another person who's from Serbia. You've got another person who's from Greece. They're all markets where there's really big clubs in, in small leagues. And I think you're going to see a situation across Europe where there might be another pyramid, or sorry, another layer that comes into the pyramid that will be regional divisions for some of these but there'll be decent solidarity that goes back into the system and this will all be done on, on UEFA's watch. It won't be your stereotypical breakaway league where the big boys take everything and there's nothing left for anyone else. And I know that UEFA are looking at those type of proposals and that's obvious from what happened in, in the Netherlands and Belgium, as we said. Does that then increase the value of all football clubs or of only some? I think it would definitely increase the value of the clubs that are that are in those markets, and it potentially increases the value of the ones where that would be part of those type of leagues if they do get off the ground. There's a lot of politics to to contend with here, and there's a lot of j- jostling for position. But I think it's ultimately about creating value for some of the leagues where I think it's good from a supporter perspective as well. I remember Jeremy P said to me when when we were working on the West Brom deal that all of the supporters preferred when they were in the championship and winning than then barely hanging on in the, in the Premier League, that it was a better supporter experience. So if you take all of the bigger teams out of a smaller league, it gives everyone else a chance to, to have some glory. They can qualify for European competition and everything else, but that would be a playoff-style model. It would almost be like what happens in the Pro 14 rugby, where only a certain amount of teams would be allowed to qualify for, for say, European competition, and that it would be a playoff annually from the, the champions of that division against the lowest-placed team. So that would be the sort of mechanism you'd be looking at. It's interesting that Jeremy P said that, because I, I often have this argument with people within football who don't see things from a fan's perspective. When you say, you know, there comes a point where you get fed up as a fan of settling for 15th every single year in the Premier League and you you kind of want a bit of excitement. And sometimes maybe that is dropping down a division and not knowing what's going to happen. And yet, from your point of view and from the money men's point of view, they'd always take 15th or 16th in the Premier League every time, wouldn't they, rather than the excitement of the championship? That's the problem. I think this has always been an issue, Mark. And, and you see it in the cup competitions. Every so often, some of the smaller teams will, will have a good run. A lot of the clubs that are potentially looking like they could be in a relegation dogfight just dive out of the cup straight away because they don't want to play the games. And from a supporter's perspective, that, that's terrible. You'd rather have some some silverware than, than just stay there because you're, you're getting $100 million a year from broadcast revenue. You've developed a tool, haven't you, to measure the value of football clubs. I, I just wonder, first of all, how did you devise that? How much work had to go into it? And then I'm going to pick a random club and you can tell me how how much, or not how much, but what we put in place to value of that club. The model that I developed, it's quite a simple model, but it, it's very, you know, it allows comparison and quick, quick calculation. But it, it has been used in quite a few uh, sort of transactions and, and people... It's a difficult thing to do to, to value a football club. So it, it's it's very much an indication, but it's focused on the on the key the key variables here. 
So it's turnover, it's profitability, it's cost management, which is usually, as we said, around uh, wages to turnover, it's use of capacity of the stadium. So, so that's how everything works. So it, it, there's, it doesn't tend to, to change. And obviously net assets as well, which will include you know, the main assets. You look at a football club, you've got uh, tangible fixed assets of a stadium, a training ground. You might have some other property and then intangible fixed assets of player contracts, having the economic right to, to use those players for, for the duration of those contracts. So that, that that's what it's made up of. Well, Tom, we, we don't need to, to give a, ask you a hypothetical question about a club and a club valuation because you've, you've just bought one or you've been involved in buying one. But I, I know you probably can't tell us exactly how much you've paid for Wigan or, or the group's paid for Wigan. I understand it to be around 2.3 million. Now, of course, at one point they were asking for 4 million, but that's a movable feast. They couldn't, they couldn't shift it at four. So, you know, just got to like, like selling a house. It's got to come down a tiny bit. And also they were selling assets, weren't they? And this, is, this has been a, a bone of considerable contention with uh, Wigan fans. Now, I don't expect you to, to start having pops at the administrators because they had a tough job to do. How hard was it to price Wigan? You know, a club, a club who were, let's be honest, a year ago, a solid championship club with a good squad, lots of good young talent in their academy. Now, a lot of that's gone now. So, so what have you got left and how, how do you price that? It's a difficult one to price. So, so just going into that, at the start of this whole process, the, they, the administrators were looking for between 8 and 10 million for, for the club. And as you said, they needed to pay the bills. So they, they obviously had to cut back on everything. They sold a lot of the more sellable players. They're doing their job under the circumstances, Matt. And it, it is a very, very difficult job. But there, there is an appeal to buying a football club that, that's effectively been cleared out. It's almost a blank canvas. And you, you, you've got no debt you don't have a lot to work with. It's a big rebuilding project. But the, the reason that that uh, Mr. Al Jasmi and, and uh, his the, the chairman Talal, his son-in-law, wanted to get involved in Wigan, it's an interesting one, actually, because if you look back to Wigan's uh, recent success, uh, the FA Cup in, in 2013, and you, you, you look at the makeup of the team, you obviously had um, Al Abzi in goal, in around that era, you had uh, Zaki, who had that phenomenal first half to that season. I was actually at Anfield when he scored that incredible goal. And, and a lot of people stood up uh, on the cop um, and you had Mido. So I think I remember spending some time in the Middle East around that time and Wigan were getting so much coverage because you had Arabic speaking players they, they were, you know, it was almost games on loop, but interviews with the likes of Al Habsi on loop. So I, I think they got a lot of coverage during that era in the Middle East. And I know from the conversations that I've had, particularly with Talal, that that has influenced the decision, that there is a perception. And this is back to what you spoke about earlier on, Mark, the reasons why people buy football clubs. They are, Talal in particular, is really interested in football. And he, he's friends with the Agnelli family, for example. So there's other 
aside from the fact that he's really interested in this project and wants to rebuild Wigan and bring it back to, to, to where it, it should be, there's other aspects to business and being able to take someone to, you know, watch your football team, uh, for, you know, for a weekend, that, that style of things. And I think that's always been in football since the very start, that it's always been a wealthy person's, I wouldn't say play thing, because it's definitely not. It's more strategic than that now. But... For someone to to have that as part of their armory and and everything else, it, I, I think it is is a big deal. Just Tom, just on going back to back to the nuts and bolts of 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 what Talal has bought at Wigan. So obviously he's bought, as you say, some goodwill, a brand. He's bought a golden share in a good competition, good pedigree. People people know Wigan. I mean, the other the other bid that got close, of course, was Spanish. And there's always famous Spanish link with Wigan. So um, it has an appeal beyond Lancashire. It, it did, and it still does have a very productive pipeline of talent. It does. It taps into that kind of northwest thing. It picks up a lot of players that, that you know, perhaps don't quite make it at Man United and Man City. It's, it's done. It's done well there in Liverpool. Training grounds. It's got a long lease. So just, just you know, how how do you do that? I mean, how do do you do you sort of say, okay, the academy's worth a million. The training ground. I like the training grounds. The lease is, it's got a good relationship with the council, so I'm going to put that value on that. I mean, how do you actually say to your client, you're overpaying, you're underpaying? You've got, you've got a steal here. The, the administrators have certain costs and, and you almost have to fit, you have to hit as close to their figures uh, as you can. So it's not your stereotypical, let's just say, negotiation where you're advising on different valuations and you know, you're almost getting down to a due diligence stage where you're looking at what the value of all the assets are, including the players. So... This one, it was slightly different from that from that perspective. You did have to hit a certain figure. You've mentioned about Ipswich. I know you broke that story. But if you look, that, look at that value in comparison to, to Wigan's price, you know, there's a significant difference in there. And I know Wigan would be deemed to be, I wouldn't use the word distressed because it's not distressed. And I think in some ways it's a good thing to have to be able to buy a club where there's say five players who are who are still under contract because it allows you strategically more leeway in in a market where you're you're looking at what happened in in the championship in recent days where a lot of clubs are struggling financially so if you have financial resources you can go in and and manage this in 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 the right way but i think it was very very good value no matter what happens obviously the club there We've had some conversations and Liam Richardson is getting all the support that he needs to, to do everything he can to keep the club in, in, in League One. But, um, you know, you, you've got a model for every eventuality. So there are a couple of things in this. I, I understand, you know, stadia and training ground and the actual physical assets and how you can value those and how you look at, you know, leases and so on and so forth. How do you work out a value for where the club are placed within the football pyramid? So, you know, if you're if you're looking at buying Ipswich, then Ipswich, just looking at the table, are in a better position than Wigan. Matt. So how much? Yeah, yeah. So how much do you buy? How how can you value where a side is in the football pyramid? That's a really good question, and I have. I've looked at this, uh, particularly for clubs that have been close to championship, let, let's just say top of championship or heading towards the Premier League. And, and there's two distinct different values. But the, the simplest 
way to look at this, Mark, from, from experience, and if you look at historical prices, it almost doubles the value depending on which division you're in. So if you look at something like a club like Cambridge United, for example, Cambridge United would have been available for, say, five, six million would have been the, the asking price uh, there. If they go up, you're probably looking at double that, which is sort of in line with the size of the club, uh, the, the level that, that Ipswich, the, the figure that, that Matt has quoted of 17 and a half million. And the same again, if you go up to the, to the championship, you can probably double that again because the, the smallest teams that have been sold in the championship, you're still talking at a sort of 25 million up to probably you can put a one in front of that for the biggest clubs that, that are in there. But it's, it's that's like, it's a very, very simple rule of thumb, but you can definitely double the, the, the price the asking price depending on which division you're in. Like so many things in football, I think the value of virtually everything is subjective, isn't it? I mean, how do how do you value? You know, you're you're putting this bid together to buy Wigan. How do you value the playing squad? Because a player that's worth a, a hundred grand to Wigan might be worth three hundred grand to a side in the championship if they desperately want someone in that position. There's no there's no set model, is there, within football to be able to value players no people have tried it you know there's been there's been various models that have been developed but there's so many parameters and so many factors that that are in there there are some good companies the likes of the 21st club that will do due due diligence on players i've heard of examples uh, of people using independent agents maybe three agents and and getting values of where they they would think they are so would due diligence on a player be i tell you what wigan have got this central midfielder he's 22 he's got two years left on his contract let's phone five directors of football at championship clubs to find out what they would offer for him and take the average i mean is it that I mean, I apologise if that's a really simple, <laughs> stupid question, but I'm just trying to get my head around it. No, it wouldn't quite be at that level because, again, if you were phoning a director of football, there could be a conflict and they might know that that player is available, etc. So they would, and a lot of this is very secretive. And there are other factors here in terms of earnings, in terms of injury history, in terms of you know age. So, so, so definitely. There's some clubs that do this brilliantly and have almost um, squad legacy management, whereas other clubs just just go along with it. Squad what? Squad legacy management. Yeah. Well, they'll be looking at the age group and how how often right. a player is playing and what they're earning, etc. I I know a few people who've done that at director of football roles and they've done it brilliantly. Is football too secretive then? Why is it so secretive? Because it doesn't need to be this way, does it? I think because you look at other industries where, you know, a lot of other industries, you're just trying to obliterate your competition and be the only only show in town. Whereas from a football perspective, you need the competition to, to survive. So, so you have a situation where... Those secrets can be the, the the difference or perceived to be the difference between success and failure. But I agree with you. I think more transparency is needed. I think it's 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 getting a lot more systematic. It's getting a lot more professional on the on the data side. 
So I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, you just need to, to manage the resources that you have in the best manner that you can. You've done some deals for Chinese buyers. And again, this is a big theme that we've been talking about for some time. You know, Chinese money came in on the big soccer boom off the back of their kind of government saying, yeah, 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 we're going to win the World Cup. We're going to do it in a hurry. Go out, go out and invest in, in, in football and, you know, the knowledge will flow back. Hasn't quite worked out change of policy back home, and we are seeing the flight of Chinese money back to, back to China. You mentioned a couple of deals you, 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 know, you helped with. I know both those clubs are for sale. Are you, are you facilitating the sale of West Brom and Southampton? I think it's no secret that both of those are on the market, and conversations ha- have been had. Um, it's obviously difficult, particularly on the Southampton side, with, with the the losses that that have been posted. But it's a, it fundamentally, it's a really really good club. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. But you're, you're spot on in terms of what's happened in, in in China, and you only have to look at the situation at Inter and 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 everything else. It's it, it's a little bit of a mess. But I think they just have pulled back, change change of policy. But it, it was interesting at the time because we've we've had these phases in football that at one stage, probably in the early to mid 2000s, anyone with a Russian accent would would every door would open. We've seen it with the fake shakes uh, along the way, you know, from from a Middle Eastern perspective, and obviously China was the next wave. And I, I, I was very well connected in China and was able to tell who was through contacts over there, who was real and who wasn't. And that was obviously a massive benefit at the time. Uh, but yeah, the policy has definitely changed. But I still think that they, they will get it right. You only have to look at what's happened with Qatar and their success in, in, in Asia. I know they've had a big budget, but they, they have a tiny population. And I think China would have big budget and a big population so i think they will get it right eventually well i mean that's that, I mean, a couple of people i've been talking to the last few weeks have been saying oh yeah i mean the story clearly is that you know the return of chinese money back to back to china and you know getting out of european football positions they said the, the story you should probably be telling now is when they come back because they'll, they'll be coming back in in a they'll have learned something hopefully and you know that money is gonna gonna China's not China's not giving up on football, um, but just what I what I'm intrigued with, given how strategic you are and you come at it, and you sort of try and talk about numbers and you you know you explain things. What did those guys want when you when you had conversations with them? What what did they think they were buying? Because of course Wigan is another example of someone that was you know a club that was owned by Chinese buyers that 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 clearly didn't quite understand what they were buying. Yeah, I'm not sure about the Wigan situation, and I I have spoken to to Darren Royal and to well Darren in particular, and I, I'm he wasn't aware of what happened at at the time. Two different things with West Brom and Southampton. I think with Southampton, they wanted to roll out the academy and sell the academy as a model in China and almost monetize that. So that was obviously a big element. With West Brom, I, I think it was more, it was the best, it was the smallest club that was consistently making money in, in the Premier League. So they felt that it was self-sufficient. But a lot of that was down to Jeremy Peace and how he ran that club with an iron fist. Uh, and without him there, that didn't necessarily happen. But they did bring him back for that reason. And he was a consultant. So like we said at the start, People, people buy clubs for different reasons and it has to fit into your overall rationale. 
This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Tom, you're also quite, you know, you're also well known for your, your work with Football Manager. And, and, and it, it, it's often sort of come up just how realistic that game is, how well designed it is. And, and whilst... The gamification of everything is is one of the other big themes at the moment, and we're turning everything into a game. Is is buying football clubs is 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 that a game? I personally, I'd like it. Although it's 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 one of those that uh, when you're involved in something in real life, do you want to spend your your spare time doing the exact same thing on a simulation? But some people do. Um, but. <laughs> Yeah, Football Manager obviously has stayed ahead of the curve. We ne- we're now up to 1,500 uh, scouts globally that are providing all of the data. And like to put that in perspective, you, you've spoken about some of the multi-club models. Some of the bigger clubs that are in that would have, say, 40 global scouts. So it's it's not even in the same stratosphere. Um, so, so the, the guys, the guys are really, really good on, on on that front, and always trying to replicate what's happening in reality. Just going back to the uh, to the buying and selling of clubs, then, and we've talked about the ones that we've mentioned, some that have gone wrong, not not necessarily that you've been involved in, but, but that have gone wrong. When you're involved in these deals, because you're obviously a sports fan and a football fan, and and love the game, how, how much? Do you investigate the people looking to buy when you are involved in a deal? Because you know, fans fans are very skeptical about most owners when they're committed, and quite often fans are proved to have been right to be skeptical about. Yeah, owners. I think that's a really good question, Mark, and it's something that personally I investigate a lot of time into that. And I, I've had lots of approaches where people might necessarily have the money, but they're quite unsavory characters and you don't want to be associated with them. And on that basis, just walked away. So, so that that's happened quite a lot. And I, I, I try to be very, very upfront with, with people as well in terms of what, you know, what they should be doing and what my advice is on that. And sometimes that's at the peril of talking them down from doing a deal, <laughs> but I, I, I'm not around for a quick book. I'm someone that, that, you know, I know a lot of people in the industry. I'm trusted in the industry, and and it's it's on that basis. And sometimes that's that's the way you need to it needs to happen. But from an EFL perspective, I think the the EFL did were very diligent in terms of their their checks and everything that they did. I got the impression that that that's ramped up after what happened to Barry, and 
you know, some of the other clubs that got into financial difficulty that they really want good quality owners in and they want owners that have the resources to be able to to fund clubs going forward. But it sounds in some ways, Tom, that you have your own individual uh, fit and proper persons test that, that, that might actually... Uh, be more morally apt than than the ones that are put in place by the football authorities. I don't, I don't know, but it sounds like you have you have your own before getting involved with anyone. Yeah, no, I definitely do, but I, I I wouldn't necessarily agree with 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 the latter part of your statement. But uh, oh, yeah, it's, so it's just, something that we've got that I feel more is breaking news important. for you. So 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 we we well, are recording this podcast at ten to eleven. It's now ten to eleven on a Wednesday morning. Um, you've already you've already re- you've already revealed before I've had a chance to reveal it, Tom. Though it will come out later. So this is all a bit surreal. The the Ipswich the Ipswich takeover is about to be announced. We'll play a little guessing game here. Another deal has just been done. I'll give you I'll give you the division, the championship. A, a, a deal has been agreed between a, a, a long-standing owner, very similar to the owner of Ipswich in many ways, and and he's he's finally managed to find. A buyer for his club. One, one guess each. Well, let Tom go, and then I'll have a guess. <laughs> it's been a bit of a saga, this one. Oh God! Oh, you you say... This is my guess. Oh, you give it. You. I mean, you could be giving more clues, or you go ahead, Mark. I would guess part, all on your clues. And I haven't seen anything, Derby. Correct. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, well done, Mark. Well, well I, didn't, Mark. I didn't have to go there, but uh, it would have would have been my three guesses. I don't know if I necessarily have gone with that in, in, in the first one, but well, that, well, I want to hear your other guesses. I want to hear your other guesses, Tom, because that, those will be the next stories. <laughs> Maybe that's for the next time on the podcast. Oh. <laughs> Derby Tom has been a very difficult club to sell. And I don't, I mean, obviously this has only just happened. So you might have no idea. Why has it been a difficult club to sell? I think predominantly because Mel Morris has invested a lot of money into the club. So to do a deal, he's clearly not going to get his money back on this. So it's what sort of haircut he takes along the way and how that deal is structured. So often they're the most difficult deals because Mel Morris is a big Derby fan as well. And he's emotionally attached to, to what's happened. And I'd say that there's elements. I remember having a conversation with Massimo Cellino and he talked himself in and talked himself out of selling leads in that conversation probably eight times during the, in the space of an hour. So, it, it, you know, there, there is an emotional attachment here. So I think that's a really, really good point. And it, it does come up quite a lot, actually. And that is the importance of selling well. And legacy, yeah. Particularly for these guys who are fans, you know, Marcus Evans. You know, he had a connection to do with where he was brought up in Ipswich. Poured money into that club. It hasn't worked out. He's going to lose a lot of money. It's the exact same story as Mel Morris, and we get that. We get this again and again and again. And and it, they, you know, they run out of steam. They run out of energy. Perhaps family members are like, "What are we doing? You know, this this is nonsense." Yeah. Uh, so you start to start to look around and who's out there. So the due diligence has to go both ways. And I and I and I I have a lot of sympathy for these guys because it's not as simple as just flogging your house and going, you know what, we're moving. We, we I don't, you know, I'm not emotionally attached to that house. If they if they build a horrible extension and upset the neighbors, who cares? But football clubs aren't like that. So how often, how do you talk to guys that are selling? How do what kind of advice can you give them about how they 
get out. I think, Matt, a lot of owners that I, that I've spoken to, particularly in the last 12, 18 months, have been really, really considerate of what you've just said, that they just won't sell to anyone, that they really do want to find the, the best people from a legacy perspective. And the good owners actually who considered selling wanted to stay in with a minority stake. So uh, from an investment perspective, that's always a good sign because it's not a fire sale. They're happy to stay and stay around. And if they are someone who can add value, fantastic. But a lot of people will, will like to be in control. And you know, the, 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 usually you're better off having you know, one or two senior people here to, to just get things done and make decisions. But we've seen the German example of Dunfermline, there's four equal shareholders and they're, they, they're, you know, they're going all right. So there's not one size fits all solution to this. If we look to the future, will are we in danger of going down a more one size fits all when it comes to club ownership? Karl Heinz Rummenigger has done an exclusive with the Athletic, and and look, there's going to be self interest involved in this because he says we can't get to the point where only clubs owned by billionaires can compete. But of course, that favours. You know, they make sure that that doesn't happen. That obviously favours Bayern's model of ownership. What we love about football is the diversity and the fact that there's so many different models and there's so many different ways that you can play and the, the joint killing aspect and everything else. Obviously, it makes it much tougher if if owners have lots of resources and, you know, it creates inflation in the market and access for traditionally big clubs. They, they, they can't compete with the wealthier clubs. So... Uh, I, I'm not necessarily completely free market on this. I think that we do need some level of competitive balance. But weirdly enough, we've probably, aside from City running away with this this season, we've had a lot of competitive balance that's been created from people not being in stadiums uh, and the whole circumstance. So, yeah, I don't think it will be a one-size-fits-all situation, Mark, but um, I think the more billionaires that we see coming into the market, the more difficult it becomes to compete if you're not in that bracket. You mentioned City, and we, we probably should just reference the fact that they've posted their financial accounts this week. And, and look, you know, like everyone, COVID's had a big hit, big impact, and we've got this sort of strange situation where for a lot of the clubs, they've having to defer income because the two seasons straddled financial years. So it's very hard to do year-on-year comparisons. But I think what we can we can say a few things about City. It's a big loss. They've invested an awful lot in their squad, and their wage bill in particular is, is eye-catchingly high. And look, you know, Mark Mark's a Man United fan, and I'm going to ask, this is really a question for Mark as well. If I was to tell you, Mark, if I was to tell you a decade ago, a decade ago, that City's wage bill would be 25% higher than United's, would you, would that, that's just a staggering thing. For someone who's sort of grown up as a United fan, in, in, in that city, that Man City would be paying 350 million and you'd be paying about 280. The other thing, obviously, with United and their wage bill was that it was always very well managed as a percentage of turnover. I'd be more, I'd be more intrigued as I mean, the sums are, are extortionate, aren't they? I'd be, and I haven't looked at what their what the wage bill is as a percentage of turnover, either for City or for United, or for United either. But one of the big things, Tom, I remember all the way through the nineties in particular, it was always highlighted how. United's United's wage structure 
was was very well managed to to fit in with with the way the club was run to such an extent that they when they renewed Roy Keane's contract, do you remember that? They renewed Roy Keane's contract and sent a letter out to season ticket holders saying they were bumping the season ticket prices up and and alluded to the fact it was because they're giving Roy Keane a new contract. I mean, that I, mean, I don't think he was best pleased with that at the time. But that but that's what that's what I would always like. I mean, that is an eye catching eye-watering amount for for city salaries but if it fits in if it fits into their business model and percentage of turnover then it's okay isn't it tom if they can afford it yeah i think i think in city's instance you, you know that they, they can absorb those losses and even if they couldn't they could sell a couple of players and and cover them straight away and there'd be full demand for those players so I, I think I wouldn't necessarily be too worried about that from a Man City perspective. Um, and I know you, you were asking about the valuation as well. I, I think all of the valuations have taken a little hit and it's in the same way that all of the valuations in the likes of London have taken, like property valuations have taken a hit under the economic circumstances, but will we'll bounce back. That that'd be my view on the whole thing. What would be the hardest Premier League club to buy? Newcastle. Newcastle fans will say Newcastle to, by, by the number of false dawns that they've had. But <laughs> well, I think Newcastle. Newcastle would be a reasonable deal to do. I'd say probably Arsenal uh, at the moment would, would be, be because I think a lot of the other big clubs are are willing to to deal but i know that they've had one or two approaches and 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 knocked them back and um, but possibly as you said the, the man united situation as well although you can buy as many shares as you want from a uh, from a from a, a listed perspective the other thing I, I forgot to mention at the start when we were talking about everything but i know i i mentioned this to you matt but um I didn't mention our filmmaking, and I know that you know Louis Miles. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know Louis. Yeah, yeah. but uh, Louis and I uh, worked on on uh, Kaiser, the greatest footballer yeah, yeah. ever to play football, which has just come out on on Amazon. Uh, so it's available on Amazon Prime. So if any of your listeners haven't seen it, we'd love to hear it. Good plug. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the the bit of advice at the end there is watch Kaiser on Amazon Prime and don't try and buy Arsenal because that would be a bit too difficult. Uh, yeah. Tom, thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Fascinating insight. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Brilliant. Right, that's it. Don't forget you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. So that's 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. We're back next week. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.